Hello and welcome to Conversations with Writers. Talking to writers about what drives them to tell their stories. Chris Hammer's debut thriller Scrublands is set in the dry, sun-ravaged heart of regional Australia. This is Chris's first work of fiction and has immediately become a bestseller, winning wide acclaim both locally and overseas. Chris is a former foreign correspondent and political journalist and has stolen from his real-life experiences to help inform this bold addition to the outback noir genre. This episode is a slight change in pace for our conversation series as we spend much of our time delving into the writing and characters of Chris's book instead of the author himself. Hello, Chris. Thank you for joining me. G'day, James. Now, Chris, every country town seems to be defined by a country pub and its people. You seem to be very fond of a country pub, both in Scrublands and from your work that you've done with the river. What does a country pub mean to you? Well, it's a shorthand way for readers, I guess, to get into a situation that they're possibly familiar with. The interesting thing in Scrublands, of course, is there is a quintessential Australian pub in the town, only one, but it's closed. So that in itself says something about the town and the state it's in. Often the, the pub is more like a, it's the heartbeat of a country town, especially some of these places you visited which have inspired the scrubland setting, the town of Riversend. That's true, and it's also symbolic of the decline of many small country towns. There's been a big demographic shift in the, in the bush because of the industrialisation of agriculture. There's not as many rural workers. And with the advent of the, of the car... Some of the larger centres have grown larger, they're doing quite well, but the smaller towns have been shrinking. And one of the most marked declines you can get is when the pub shuts and there's a kind of a, at least there used to be a, a market for the licences for the hotels that people would buy the licence but then would transfer it to, say, a, a new suburb in Sydney or one of the bigger coastal areas. And... Um, you write for many of the smaller towns. Larger towns often have like service clubs, that sort of thing. But the smaller towns, yes, the pub is where the footy team meets. It's where the cricket team meets. It's where you can get something to eat. Um, yeah, much of the social life, the adult social life revolves around the pub. How much did your experience of the river um, when you were writing the non-fiction book, The River, influenced the creation of the town of River's End, which is featured in the new book? A lot and not a lot. Um, a lot in the sense that where the town is set is out kind of on the Hay Plain, which anyone who's driven between, say, Sydney or Canberra or the East Coast and Adelaide, you go across this landscape that is devoid of trees, totally flat. You can pretty much see the curvature of the earth in the in the land and that stayed with me and also I went to towns there where their rivers had run dry um, probably more accurate to say their rivers had been turned off um, but the town itself is not a real town with a fictitious name it's a made-up town the towns out there tend to be quite spread out because there's a lot of land and the land's not expensive so there's no real reason for them to be 
self-contained. The town in, in Scrublands, uh, Riversand, is quite a small self-contained town and it probably draws on little elements from various towns I've been to in various parts around Australia over many years. Tell me about one of these small towns you went to, a place by the name of Ford's Bridge, which I understand went through a bit of a population explosion at one stage when you were writing your book, your early book, The River. Okay, so you're taking me back 10 years and I've got to remember the town as I remember it. It's a town at the back of Burke, literally, out beyond the Darling River and I think of the population, yeah, gone from four to five or something <laughs> like that, just a tiny little kind of crossroads hamlet, you know, but with a pub. So that was that was the definition of that town. Um, I can't even remember if it had a post office. It might have been the same thing, um, cover, you know, servicing a huge area. The river and then the subsequent follow-up book, The Coast, which really travelled along the edges of Australia down to Tasmania, they seem to be these sort of laconic love letters to the, the water systems and, and the regional areas of Australia, as well as being as much as they were a study of climate science as well. How much did that inform the need to write or the desire to write this book set in regional Australia? Well, I don't know, probably not at all. No, no, I can see why you might think that. Um, the river and the coast are non-fiction, but there's some technical term like narrative non-fiction or whatever. They're really like travel writing. So I'm travelling through an area exploring different issues, particularly the first book, The River, it was about environmental change, climate change, it was about drought, and then it evolved to cover a whole lot of other areas like Australian culture, history, Indigenous issues. But it was written in a very impressionistic way, which travel writing often has. You, you, the writer, it gives the writer room to move, so it's not merely a recital of facts, it's the writer's impression. So I really enjoyed doing that. Then when I sort of decided or had the opportunity to write fiction, um, the reason it was said in a small country town is not totally clear to me. Part of it was because the setting from the drought had stayed with me and for a crime story it seemed like a very good type of setting. But also because of the nature of the plot of the book, it really helps if it's set in a small confined community. And the reason for that, spoiler alert for any of your listeners who haven't read the book, is there's more than one crime. And the question for the protagonist, Martin Skarsden, is are these crimes connected um, or not? Whereas if those two crimes, that say, happened in a big city like Sydney, there'd be no reason why he would even consider that they were connected because, you know, a city the size of Sydney, there's crimes happening every day and night, whereas in a small country town, you know, there, are, there isn't that much crime, particularly, let's say, murder, so it really stands out. Yeah, one of the other plot devices that becomes quite apparent is that the benefit of setting in one of these regional areas is mobile phone reception and the absence of it throughout the story. That it, it sort of prevents the protagonist from having easy solutions to dramatic consequences. That's right, and that that's plays into the plot to an extent. Yeah, the fact that com communication with the outside 
world is more difficult, but it also works on another level as well, rather than just merely the plot, because it reinforces the sense of isolation in a town, which is a recurring theme. So this sense of it's a long way from anywhere, it's a long way from water, telecommunications are difficult, and the drought and the heat are oppressive in their own right. So they're almost like characters in the book. So it builds up this sense of isolation. You mentioned the protagonist there, Martin Skarsden. He's a journalist working for the Sydney Morning Herald and he comes out to follow up on this murder of a year ago. And the murder begins in the first two pages of the book. We seem to have a fascination as a media with the following of an event, the follow-up of what the emotional, the psychological impact, the sociological impact of a major traumatic event is like. And you yourself have covered these many years ago, um, very similar timing to Martin Scars in this instance. You went back to Aceh after the tsunami of Indonesia. You went back a year on and you spent 10 days in Indonesia covering that story. Martin spends 10 days in this town covering the story one year on. Why do you think it's so important for us to revisit these events, often on these anniversaries? It's a, it's probably in 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 the most brutal sense. It's a easy assignment for the media to plan for because so much of the news media, what uh, what it does is cover unexpected events. The tsunami was a huge event, and one year on when I did that story. It, was, it wasn't just remembering what had happened because there were still 60 or 70,000 people who were living in tents a year on. There was still a crisis of aid. There was also a major political problem happening there because it, they, before the tsunami, it was very difficult to go there as a journalist because there was an insurgency. There was the GAM rebels in the, fighting in the mountains. So that was not just remembering, that wasn't just an anniversary. The story that I think um, probably set that seed of an idea in my mind was another one that I did in uh, Texas in the United States about 20 years ago. There was a very brutal murder that shocked America, shocked the world, where three white extremists had taken a Native American man tied him to the back of a pickup truck and dragged him to death. This is, is this James Boyd Jr.? It, yeah, Jasper, Texas. Yeah. Um, James Bird Jr., yeah. Um, and I went there, it wasn't a year later, it was about three months later, but the assignment was not to cover the murder, which had been well and truly covered, but just to see how the town was coping. Now, that's pretty much where the similarity ends with Martin Skarsden's journey in Scrublands because really my story in America was all about race. It was a racially divided town. The murder was an extreme example of that. Um, but the town was essentially segregated, not by law, by custom. That is not an element in Scrublands at all. But I think that's what set the seed of, of, of this idea that of journalists going a year after this terrible massacre, that, as you say, in the, the book opens with a prologue where a priest shoots dead five members of his congregation. Martin goes back there a year later, and the intention is 
uh, not to find out why the priest did it because it's thought that that, that, that is well known. And then the longer he's there, he starts to question the accepted wisdom and then he starts uncovering more secrets about the town. But that initial idea of how they could come apart, I think is probably, you're right, it probably comes from my own experience as a journalist. Mm. How much of your journalist experience informed the nature of the character of Martin then? Because it does seem to be a story about the competitiveness and also camaraderie of journalists on a scene. Look, it's... It's probably more informed by my background than I realise. Um, a lot of people have commented. So, so not just Martin, there's more media arrive in the town as events unfold. It becomes the biggest story in Australia. Um, it's not really meant to be a commentary on the media. Um, in fact, in the structure of the book, uh, it's a crime book. So there's, there's two ways I could have approached it and one is just build up the pressure kind of relentlessly with a similar tone or I could do what I did do which is a bit more light and shade so there is a sense of pressure building up but then there's there's moments of of humor and levity and much of that's provided by the media the media get you have the insight in the media being um, competitive but also following each other's leads. And when someone gets it wrong, they all get it wrong. And there's a sort of, there's a bit of buffoonery amongst the, the media there, which helps helps lighten the story to some degree, but then also provides contrasts. So the more dramatic elements then become more dramatic. One of the lines you use to describe the act of journalism is to, to witness the worst the world has to offer, then sanitise it for public consumption. Is that what you feel? That, that's not part of the story. That's a comment that, that I've made elsewhere. So, and that's referring, Martin is a damaged person when he arrives in the town. He's suffering from post-traumatic uh, stress. And there's a lot of journalists uh, that I've met over the years, not necessarily Australians, but say, you know, cameramen and photographers who, who covered the war in Bosnia and saw terrible things. And as we understand that our military personnel uh, suffer from PTSD, so too, I think, to many correspondents. And I'm not just talking about people in war zones, the people for example, who would have covered the tsunami when it first happened. But even here in Australia, you know, um, bushfires, even domestic violence or um, car accidents. You go to a car accident, you see dead children. It's very hard to unsee that. But, of course, the footage that goes to air in the 6 o'clock news has none of that in it. That's what I mean. You go and you see terrible things, but... You know, if you go to, to, to some place after a bombing and there's body parts on the ground, well, you don't film them and show them, or if you film them, you don't show them anyway. I'm not talking about my personal experience. That that hasn't happened to me. And so there is a, a point, and it's really not to do with the book, but it's a wider point that journalists and and many other professions too, I mean, um, police and paramedics are forever, firefighters are forever... Um, confronting things like that and they need to deal with them 
So, so it, 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 it's an element in the book because Martin suffers that sort of uh, PTSD. Yeah, he relates to an incident in the Gaza Strip, and you've worked through the Gaza Strip around 2005, 2006, I think it was. I mean, have you had to compartmentalise any of the work that you've done? No, not really. I'm, so Martin is not me. I mean, he's informed by my experience. So, for example, you know, I've been happily married for more than 20 years and got kids and all the rest. Martin, because of his background, finds it very hard to uh, empathise and connect with other people. He's very much a loner. That's, that's not me. That's a character created to drive. And I am writing another book and we explore further why he's like that. It's not just because of what happened to him in, in Gaza. There's a chance for romance, and as which you expect in a book of this size. Um, but his actual commitment to journalism seems to get in the way of romance. This this need to home in on on tragedy and and the truth as well it seems to get in his way. Is this something you've seen in other journalists that the need for the story stops them from living a different life? No, that's not the. That's probably not the right take on it. The take oh. is more. In telling the readers the truth, which is the commitment that most journalists have, there's always the potential to damage people along the way. And so a typical scenario would be, for example, there's a tragedy has befallen a town. The townspeople are trying to pull together to support each other and they see the journalists arriving to tell the story as kind of like vultures or blowfly. So I wasn't there, but friends of mine who, who travelled to Threadbow when, the, when there was a landslide there and there was that ongoing rescue operation to try and get um, Stuart Diver out from under the rubble. They were The community there was mourning the loss of, of people there. I forget how many people died. It was around 20 or so. Um, and the media was seen as very uh, inconsiderate you know they're going around trying to interview people you know what they felt about the the situation so that's quite a common uh dynamic i guess so with martin his background is he's been he's described as this parachute journalist who goes into these crisis situations writes a story doesn't his loyalty is absolutely to the readers and he doesn't really care the damage he might do to the places he's been, and then he just leaves again. He's a foreign correspondent, okay. But now he's in this town, and he finds himself starting to worry about the damage that he might do, and particularly to the young woman that he becomes um, entwined with, uh, Mandalay Blonde, her name is. And and he's he's questioning the ethics of some of the people he's seen in the town. But upon reflection, he realises he's doing the same sort of thing, which is basically, you know, to um, to engage with her emotionally, knowing full well he's about to leave town and, you know, kind of see you later. Do these characters just fall into the stories you went along or did you plot it out from the very beginning? Um, I wish I'd plotted it from the start because <laughs> it would have been a lot less work. No, it evolved. It had three totally different 
endings or t three totally different back halves of the book. I originally sort of planned it out as a trilogy, wrote two books, were pretty much through the third one, submitted the first one to a uh, to an agent who liked it but said you can't do trilogies in crime because you can't you've got to tell people who did it. To which I went, yeah, of course, duh, um, because I wouldn't buy a book where I didn't find out who did it, sort of thing. So I threw away, I don't know, over a hundred thousand words, I guess. Rewrote the end of the book. Managed to get a uh, a deal with an agent and then a publisher, and then decided I'd rewrite the end of the book again. So the last. Forty or fifty thousand words went out the window. So, so I, I'm not talking tweaked. I mean, totally different plot lines. Um, but some of that, some of that was pulling stuff forward that I envisaged in the second or third book. So it wasn't totally new. Um, yeah. So I don't recommend that. <laughs> I'm certainly not going to do that with my. Well, fingers crossed. I'm trying not to do that with the next book that I'm sort of about 25,000 words into at the moment. No, it, it evolved a lot as I wrote it. And I think I learnt a lot about writing a book um, and what works and what doesn't work. And I hope I'm still working. I mean, the reception to, to the book, is, as you know, has been very generous. Um, but I'm kind of determined not to kind of rest on whatever laurels I might have, but to sort of still learn more and, and, and get better at, at the craft. Did you leave anything on the field for this first book? Because it's, I mean, it's a very dense book and it just, as we talked about earlier, it's almost like an onion of crime. There's layer upon layer upon layer, layer as you go along. There was no expectation, I would imagine, initially that you were going to be able to do a second or a third? Um, the, no, there are there's certainly unresolved issues from this book. It's not obvious if you read it. But as I wrote it, it, I was quite ambitious, if I put it that way, not in the sense of selling lots of books or getting a publisher, but I thought, oh, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to have some fun. So I sort of set up some cliches and then reversed them. And one of the things I wanted to do was have characters that were quite nuanced. Um, and weren't just cardboard cutout characters, which you can certainly do in a like a crime stroke thriller book. And there's nothing wrong with that. You know, you write a book that's plot driven. People read it, they enjoy the plot. But I thought, oh no, I'll be more ambitious. So in that sense, and so for example, there's character development. So Martin Scarsden, he's the protagonist. So. It's not written first person, it's written third person, but it's very much through his eyes. There's no scenes, you know, apart from the prologue where the priest shoots the parishioners, there's no scene where Martin isn't present. And you also, the reader learns what Martin is thinking, but not of any of the other characters. So he's the protagonist. But the Martin... Scarsden that's there at the beginning of the book is very different from the Martin Scarsden at the end of the book. And I like books where characters develop. They're not just there to service the plot. They're there as an interesting facet of the book in their own right. And not just Martin, some of the other characters also change throughout the book, particularly Mandy. 
And many of the characters are nuanced in it. There's not a bunch of goodies and a bunch of baddies. There's elements of many of the characters that are both good and bad. So that was one of the... So in writing the book, I, I think a crime book, you need a good plot. You don't want someone to guess a third or halfway through it, you know, who did it. On the other hand, you don't want to have some sort of surprise new character 20 pages from the end that sets it up in such a way as the reader feels cheated. So plot's really important. But particularly in crime, there's a lot of room for writing, for character development, particularly psychology of characters. So typically now in crime books, the killer is a normal member of society. So, and it's part of it, most crime books is like working out who killed such and such. You know, you just think you're a typical... Yeah, the classic who done it. Well, you know, Midsummer Murders or Agatha Christie or whatever, you know, yeah, who, who done it. But if you think about it, if they're a normal member of society, it's a very extreme act to kill someone. So why have they done it? So they need a motivation. You can have something really superficial like, oh, they just wanted to get the person's money or something. But there's actually room there to explore the psychology of that. If you're going to explore the psychology of the killer, why not explore the psychology of some of the other characters, including your protagonist? So therefore, why did you perhaps choose to stay with Martin throughout the whole book? Because as you said, you don't branch off and give coverage to any other characters on their own. It's all, we are travelling almost on Martin's shoulder throughout. So if you're interested in the psychology of those people around him as well, why that decision? So that's, it, that's, a, that's a good question. And it's one of those decisions I think a writer has to make. So one of the things I think is important in a book is a kind of consistency of voice and view. So if, if you do have multiple points of view, which can be can work extremely well. Um, you know, Bonfire, Bonfire of the Vanities is a book where you get different points of view and it, it really works extremely well in that case. Um, part of it, I think, was just my confidence, like being confident enough as a writer. I felt, and just the type of story that it is, I felt you could drive it through having one character. One of the... One of the choices you've got as an author is how much do you tell the reader and how much you leave up to their imagination. And some of the stories I find as a reader work best is where you're wondering why did they do that, why has they done, done that. There's a, if, if you're inside everyone's head, you know, one chapter with one person, one chapter with another one chapter, you know what's in all their heads, okay? In some ways, it's more interesting if you don't know what's driving them and the reader gets to ponder it and explore it. Um, so so that there's different, different techniques have different results. I think it wasn't so much a big debate within my own head, though, to be honest, I just more naturally fell in this situation into into Martin. Now, the next book I'm writing, uh, Martin is again the protagonist, but I will write it in the same style, in that same 
similar point of view to have consistency within that two books. Maybe it ends up being three books, who knows. But I would like maybe to branch out and write a book with a different sort of style. My first two books, um, which were travel writing, they were told in the first person because it was me travelling around meeting people yeah. and that was a natural choice to be made. Um, I guess it, it would be kind of difficult to do that story. If I did that story in the third person, you'd lose a lot of the impressionistic type of stuff as it as it is it it works well so it's an it's an it's an it's an interesting question you pose and a valid one but as i say to be honest i think i just kind of fell into that and there were there were actually when i was writing it there were some scenes that weren't told from martin's point of view and um and they kind of worked, but in the end, it was better to have consistency. So I think one of the most important things for any book is a consistent tone and a consistent voice. It doesn't mean you can't have moments of lightness and, you know, light and shade and of authenticity. So even if it's like a, a fantasy book, you know, Tolkien or something, the consistency of voice, consistency of approach, and that authenticity is very important to the reader. You don't want to, you don't want to be jarred. So I think, in the end, those scenes where it wasn't from Martin's point of view, as individual scenes, they were, they were really quite good. Some of them, but they just didn't fit with the rest of the book, so they got tossed. Is that because they essentially broke that level of intimacy that you'd established? That's right. So the books I like reading, and. So when I was writing this book, I wasn't, I wasn't thinking of, of a market, but I was thinking, if you like, of a reader, what it would be like to, if I were reading this book. I like books when I read that I become immersed in. They, they set up a, a world or, or a worldview and whatever. So that was, that was part of the motivation for me. And, it, and in the end, because so much of the story was being told from Martin's point of view, it made sense that the whole book be told from Martin's point of view. Yeah, one of the great things about the book is something you mentioned earlier, which is because we don't get insight to these other in, you know, other characters who are around him, it removes the predictability of what they're going to do or say next. So therefore, we only can judge their character as he judges them by their actions on each new page, which gives them a, a greater sense of vitality in many ways, because chapter to chapter, some of these people are revealed not to be who we thought they were when he started 10 days ago. Was that fun for you to sort of rip off the layers of each individual as you wrote along as well? Absolutely. I, I, the writing process, um, I really enjoyed. And there were times it was almost like I was reading the book rather than writing it. Oh, it must be lovely. Uh, yeah, not that common, but when it happens, it's fantastic. And some of the characters, yeah, changed their spots as, as I was writing them. You know, new ideas came to me going, oh, no, it would be better if they were doing that or, yeah. 
It's interesting because, you know, so much of your career writing oh, as a journalist, you've worked in TV, you've worked in print and you know, things like the Bulletin and also TV journalism on Dateline allow you to build more of a story, more of a narrative in the in the piece you're putting to either to TV or into, or into print, more so than the reportage nature of, say, political reporting, which is this action happened, this is what happened today, and this will be the consequence. Did this fictional opportunity, or sorry, this opportunity to write fiction just allow you to break free of everything you'd learned or done before? It's very liberating in that, you know, you don't have to worry about facts and cross-checking and all of that. But I think I was... So many journalists want to write books, as you know, and some do it very well and some just can't make the change because they're just used to that kind of factual writing. Also, a lot of journalistic writing is very clichéd because it's like shorthand. You know, the idea is to get the point across as quickly as possible. So clichés actually help in that situation. They don't help in books. So one thing, though, that I think did help me was long-form television current affairs. You do a half-hour story, you've got all this information and facts, you have to think flexibly because you need to have the pictures to tell the story. You just can't tell it like, say, you could in radio. So you're always having to think of different ways of telling the story. And also you need a through line. You need to, to lead the viewer through the story. So we begin here, we go there. You want to bring a side element in. How do you do that? And I think that in some ways helped me writing a novel. When you're writing those sort of stories for the Dateline pieces, are you thinking visually? I mean, you're working with a cameraman already, but ultimately any news piece you put together has to go into the editing room. So it has to have those beats, those rhythms, those cuts that you need to tell the story as you've just indicated then. So do you write, did you write this from a very visual place? You saw it unraveling in front of you? I think it is a quite a visual book. I was Thinking that the other day, we've been fortunate enough to have it um, optioned for a television series. And I think it is visual, um, but that's not really what I was getting at when I was talking about writing through lines and, and taking a reader through a, through a situation. I was just wondering how much of that informed the writing process naturally or, or unconsciously. I, I think it probably did. You just mentioned there that it's been picked up to potentially be made into a TV series. It's by the team behind Jack Irish, behind the, the show that's on just been on ABC recently. And Jack Irish books, of course, are um, written by Peter Temple, the late, great Peter Temple. And you know where this is going. Um, Peter Temple apparently was one of your writing lecturers back at Bathurst University all those years ago. He, he was indeed, and quite a memorable one. A little unforgiving, I understand. Uh, very unforgiving. Um, kind of a bit of... Jekyll and Hyde character in, in, in class, he could be um, Mr. Mr. Hyde, but later at the bar or something, he was totally charming. Although he wasn't teaching us creative writing, he was teaching us journalistic writing. And he himself at that stage wouldn't have written any fiction or published any fiction yet. But he was a great stylist. And he wasn't just teaching us, you know, pyramid, most important fact first sort of stuff he was teaching us more uh more about the style and the elegance of writing and i think that really stayed with a lot of us when's the next book due 
There is no Dubai Day. Oh, what a joy. Yeah, I'm, well, <laughs> sorry, let me correct that. I don't know what the Dubai Day <laughs> is. The publisher has been nice enough to, not to tell me. No, there's not. I, I would like to have it out at a similar time next year, but we're just going to have to see whether that actually works or not. I'd much prefer to delay it and try and meet some artificial deadline. There does seem to be an expectation on crime writers in particular and genre writers to produce a book a year. Um, if I was writing more of a purely plot-driven type of book, you know, an 80 or 90,000 word book, that would be quite easy to do. I'm trying to plan this one out and write more efficiently, if you like, with the next one. But that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to happen like that. The great luxury, though, is um, is I can write full-time now, whereas before I had family, I had a very demanding job. It was written in, you know, grab grabbing moments, which would be very familiar to many of your listeners. I'm sure people are trying to write their own books. You know, where do you feel, where, where do you find the time? So now I do have the luxury of... of and the privilege of writing full time, hopefully it will come together uh, more easily. But interview me in a year's time, I'll, <laughs> I'll let you know. We'll see how painful it really was. Chris, it's been a huge success. I'm sure it has outdone any of your expectations. What's your ambitions now? To continue writing books and to write them well. I, I have no ambitions about uh, selling books or um, prizes or anything like that. My idea behind this was to write a good book and that remains my ambition is to write more books and good books and try and get better at writing the books. Chris, it's a great piece of work. So congratulations on the huge success and thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, James. And you can find Chris's book, Scrublands, in stores and online right now. And if you've enjoyed the show, you can find us on Twitter at ConversationsWW. You can like us on Facebook and you can also leave a review on iTunes, which will be greatly appreciated as that helps people to find the show. This has been James Rickards for Conversations with Writers. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs>